Today is January 31st, and we have a crossover episode about Babe Ruth and his infamous, famous called shot in the 1932 World Series. Let's talk Yanks. Talking Yanks with old John Boy. John Boy and Jake. All right, what's up, guys? How you guys everyone doing? Thank you for joining us. We have a crossover episode today, okay? It's Yankees. You're all going to love it. Jake and I have another podcast called Laughs from the Past where I tell Jake a story from history. We make some jokes. I I do all the research. Jake's hearing it for the first time. He gets shocked or bewildered or whatever by it. So, Jake, tell him about this one a little bit before we we play it for him. So yeah, we normally we do some we've done some quirky stories in in history. We've done a whole civil war section. We random we we we've covered the board. Um this one is is an all-timer. It's I I think I said it early on in the episode, but it's the one of your first times on a baseball field swinging a bat. You are told what this is, and it's the Babe Ruth called shot. Um so we uh we kind of relive it. We jump back to uh the 1930s, a little bit in the 1920s. What was going on? If you didn't know, I mean it's a World Series game. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of Babe Ruth's just mantra and what what he <laughs> was as a just one of the first like celebrities ever. Biggest, probably biggest of his time. Like the the biggest celebrity of his time um and I don't know. It's it's just a wild story, and uh, I think a lot of people could appreciate it. Yankee fans or not, but yeah. so if you enjoy this, the format, which is me reading a piece of resource research, telling Jake us laughing and joking about it, be sure to check out all the other episodes from Laughs from the Past. We are right now in season three, which is historical mysteries. We did Dyatlov Pass Incident. We did The Lost Colony of Roanoke. Coming up, we have D.B. Cooper, Escape from Alcatraz, a bunch of other things. Season three, Historical Mysteries. Season one is 22 episodes of just random, hilarious stories. Season two is all about the Civil War. Uh, We appreciate it. If you enjoy talking Yanks and you enjoy the banter and just Jake and I, this is another avenue to go listen to this podcast. But listen to this episode first because it's the story about Babe Ruth calling a shot, or did he? In 1932, and it is an awesome, fantastic tale. Thanks. In the fifth inning of Game 3 of the 1932 World Series, 37-year-old George Herman Babe Ruth stepped into the batter's box. He was already a legend in the baseball world, but what happened next will go down as the greatest feat ever recorded on a baseball diamond. That is, if it's true. This is Laughs from the Past. It's really good. All right, everybody, welcome back to Laughs from the Past. Season three, Historical Mysteries. This is episode three of season three. First episode, Dyatlov Pass Incident. Second episode was the Lost Colony of Roanoke. Third episode, Did Babe Ruth Call His Shot? One of the greatest sports mysteries. One of the greatest sports myths. One of the greatest sports legends of all time. Happened almost 100 years ago. 80-something years ago, and people... Little kids probably still know about this because it became such a huge, huge thing. Romanticized. It's like the first thing you learn when you get on a baseball field. <laughs> yeah. 
it's it's like it's it's known. Okay, did he call it, Jake? Do you know? Have you ever looked into this? So I, I obviously haven't deep dive. I haven't deep dived into anything in my life really, but from what I know, I don't think he was calling a home run. But he was he I in my head I think he was doing the like watch this. Like watch what's about to happen. I don't think he necessarily said like I'm going Yabo right here. Okay. But I I think he was like like I don't I'm trying to think the a good comparison in my head. Like I almost picture it as I guess you see it more in the NBA like when you see a celebrity sitting on the s- sideline like Spike Lee and like Michael Jordan points at him and is like, "This one's for you. Watch this." Like I have it kind of in that level of my head. Okay. You know. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. All right, so I bought uh, a book. If you want to know where I'm getting all this info from, you know I like to give my sources. It is Babe Ruth's Called Shot by Ed Sherman. A little paperback. Let's see. It's like uh, 200 pages. It was the quickest read. I didn't read everything. I read I read the, the meat chapters because they do like a couple preamble chapters. But this was one of the quicker reads. Not Maybe it's just because it's a fascinating subject to me and like awesome. I'm so excited with the story because I didn't know. I you know, I didn't know how interesting this can be. What's the landscape surrounding this event? Was it just a pitch and he said I'm going to hit a home run and then did it? You know what I mean? The story is awesome, Jacob. So excited to share it with you. Yeah. Cuz we're both baseball nerds, but even if you're not in the baseball, this is just it's just stardom and intrigue, all right? All 1932, right. Babe Ruth already has an amazing career. He's already like the king of the world, basically. Right. Uh, he's an abrasive guy. The Yankees and the Cubs meet in the World Series, but this tale starts way before that. This tale starts like all good baseball tales start with a cleat chaser. What are they called? With a groupie, with a baseball groupie shooting a professional baseball player in a hotel room. That's where this story starts, Jake. The jock sniffer? Yeah. Billy Jurges. And I apologize for anyone that's listening that was alive and knows how to pronounce all these names properly. I'll do my best. Billy Jurges was staying in a hotel room a few blocks from Wrigley Field, July 6, 1932. Just 24 years old, he was in his second full season with the Cubs. He was born in the Bronx. Jurges was young, handsome, and now he was playing shortstop for the Cubs. All in all, a good combination went on the prowl in search of pretty woman. Among his acquaintances was a young woman named Violet Popovich. She had quite the figure and wasn't shy about showing it. Jurgis recalled when he was 80 what happened when Popovich rang his hotel room on that warm summer morning in 1932. She called me from the lobby. It's early in the morning, about 7 o'clock, and she said, I'd like to see you. I said, come on up. When she came to my room, I told her, I'm not going to go out on any more dates. We've got a chance to win the pennant. I've got to get my rest. Popovich didn't react well to the declaration. According to Jerzish, she pulled out her gun out of her purse and started shooting. He was hit twice before he grabbed the gun, which went off a third time, hitting him in the palm. Jerzish had been had more than just his hand to worry about. He suffered a more serious wound to the right side of his chest, the bullet hitting, hitting a rib and ricocheting out of his shoulder. He ran out of the hall and saw Martin, Marvin Gadot, a utility outfielder on the team. I said, get a doctor. 
I was bleeding like a pig lying on the bed when this young doctor was working on me. I could hardly breathe. I said, Doc, how am I? I'll give you 20 minutes to live. You've got it bad, he replied. But luckily for Jurgis, the situation wasn't as dire as that. The Cubs team doctor happened to be nearby and diagnosed Jurgis' injuries less than fatal. In fact, they weren't even that serious. He was out of uniform for less than a month. Just life. Life as a baseball player in 1932. Couple things. A, how much better was it back then to have, like, the team doctor around than nowadays? Like, I'm sorry. I'm I'm sure, you know, the Yankees have a great training staff. But, like, I, you know, if I get shot in the hand and the chest, I want to go to, like, a hospital doctor. Like, I don't want the guys that are normally working on hamstrings and, like, yeah. tight muscles. Uh-huh. So, old-timey days you have a guy that's more so trained to deal with that stuff. So I think, A, that's a good break. <laughs> yeah, doctors were more well-versed in everything then is what you're getting at. B, how could you not say the name Violet Popovich in an old-timey voice? You're the old-timey voice guy. Ah, they, you, all, you know that floozy Violet Popovich, huh? <laughs> she shot uh, this guy. Okay, so she shoots this guy. And I guess my final thought that was running through my head, and I... I was thinking of a lot of easy jokes, but you know, there's there's the common stereotype where you, you know you see a lot of stand-up guys say it. They'll be like, you know, if a guy breaks up with a girl, they just say they're crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Violet Popovich wasn't helping the cause back in the day. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Violet Popovich, she was actually going to Kiki Cooler's room, but he wasn't there. So she wrote a note and put it under his door that said, I'm going to kill you. Then just turned out that uh, Jurgis was in the hotel room next door. So he he got shot for Kiki, who wasn't there. This became so a she famous... really was a floozy, right? Am oh, I yeah. Understanding that? No, okay. she was a she was a groupie. She like slept with baseball players. Sure. But she went on to make a career out of this. She had her own play in Chicago retelling the story of when she shot a, ba- a Cubs player. Genius. It's marketing. <laughs> Uh, How does this play in, Jake? How does this play into the Babe Ruth calling a shot? Well, with with Jurgis out and not knowing when he was going to return, the Cubs started scouting replacement shortstops. They found a guy named Mark Koenig, and he became pivotal in the called shot drama. I'm going Koenig. Koenig? I want to say Koenig. I'm just... that's that's the name of the uh, what my my American story lady Sarah Koenig. I thought hers was Koenig. That's what I was basing Koenig off of. Oh shit! <laughs> well, now we're in a pickle. I'll go Koenig. I can adjust. It's K O E, so I don't know how you get K out of that. I thought I thought it was naturally pronounced Koenig. I'll go Koenig. I have no idea. All right. It's the same last name, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do a, just a quick. Let's just see it. Let's do it. How to pronounce? Koenig. Koenig. You're right. It's Koenig. Koenig. Good Got job. It. Okay. So the Cubs found a shortstop who was out of professional baseball time, Mark Koenig, as a replacement. Okay. Now sure. it turns out Jurgis came back in less than a month from his injuries, but then the Cubs lost another player and they already had Koenig on mind because Jurgis got shot. By so, the way, how much do we love this part of the story? Just because it's such a different dynamic. Like, how far you and I are sucked into the baseball world that we would be like, 
you know, if a Yankees outfielder went down, you know, we'd have Clint Frazier ready to go. You know, hey, is that Florial guy ready? Blah, blah, blah. These guys were like, oh, well, all right, our shortstop got shot, so we're going to have to find another guy. Oh, wait, a month later, our shortstop can come back, but another guy's out, so we'll just keep this other guy too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so what? <laughs> <laughs> it's weird, dude. I was, I've opened this book. I was like, what? Koenig's career definitely was in limbo at the time. So this is, he came up with the Yankees in 1925 at age 20. This is Koenig. And soon worked his way into the lineup. He was the shortstop for the great 1927 Yankees team, Murderer's Row. He was the shortstop. With so many bombers on the roster, he was there for his glove, serving as an anchor for the infield, and he could hit a little, recording a 313 batting average in 1928. This is his quote, I was ordinary, a small cog in a big machine, he said on his years with the 1927 Yankees. Just awesome to be able to say that. Yeah, and it, again, this story just makes it sound like this guy was working at the steel mill one day, and then he was the shortstop for the Yankees. So that's what I currently have going through my head. Well, like, he oh, was... got, got a good break. <laughs> in, in 1929, Leo DeRocher, DeRocher, DeRocher took over a shortstop. DeRocher yeah. took over a shortstop for the Yankees, and Koenig was dealt to Detroit. Eye problems plagued Koenig, though, and he opened the 1930. 1930- two season with the San Francisco in the Pacific Coast League. So he was out of professional. He was in the minors in the Pacific Coast League for the uh, Detroit. Though he was just 27, it looked like Koenig's career was over. However, after undergoing surgery on his sinuses, his condition improved and so did his play. So he goes to the Cubs, right? Because Jurgis got shot. Now this ex-Yankee, this guy who was a teammate of Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, the whole crew, is now on the Cubs. And the Cubs also had McCarthy as a manager, but they they had Hornsby as a player, and Hornsby lobbied for Wrigley to fire McCarthy. McCarthy first, as a manager, told Wrigley, hey, I want this player, Hornsby. And then as Hornsby as a player, he hit 380. He led the cup. He was really good. He said, right. yo, get McCarthy out of here. He's a bum. But Hornsby considered McCarthy a busher because the manager never played in the majors. So Hornsby started to lobby Wrigley to let him run the show. Despite 56 homers and 191 RBIs from Hack Wilson, the Cubs finished second in 1930. Wrigley listened to Hornsby and fired McCarthy with four games left in the season. This is, and he said to the press, McCarthy lacks enough desire for a world championship. McCarthy would then go on to win uh, seven World Series as the Yankees manager and two at the Cubs' expense. Okay. How about that? So he McCarthy was the manager of the Yankees in 1932. So you have some hatred there. McCarthy's right. now playing against the team who 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 dumped him for a player. Okay. So Kane comes up with the Cubs and he is just like killing it. He basically in those last two months just helps them win the pennant and go to the World nice. Series. And remember, only one team went then. You had to win the league to right. go to the World Series. After the Cubs locked up the pennant, they gathered to div- divide the bonus money for the World Series share. Remember, this was long before seven-figure salaries. Most players weren't even making five figures, and in the depths of the Great Depression, money was even tighter. The prospect of making an additional four dollars to $5,000 was a big deal for a player struggling to stay ahead in that economic climate. Obviously, the Cubs were going to award full shares to players who played for the entire season, but what about the guys on hand for only part of the ride? The Cubs awarded 22 full shares and five partials. Koenig fell into the latter category, ultimately cashing in $2,122 for a half share of the World Series pot. 
Koenig's teammates thought they had justification for the reasoning. Koenig had played only 33 games. He hadn't been on the team for even two months. How did he deserve the same financial treatment as a full-season player? So we just had a debate about this in recent Yankees line with David Robertson and giving the clubhouse attendees and the lower-level guys shares. Yeah. Still a problem back then. Do you think Koenig deserved more? Well, it, it really is interesting because, again, we're we're trying to dive back in the times here, and I see how history people get their jollies trying to figure this stuff out because this normally isn't my thought process. But 1932, Koenig comes up, 33 games like mentioned. He hits 353 and 887 OPS. And, like, I don't, it sounded like there was a lot going on with the team at the time. So if this guy came in and for, you know, a quarter of the season – you know, helped save things, you know, you you think you might throw a, throw him the full handshake. But again, it's a lot of moving parts there. Like I could see myself being in the clubhouse and being like, yo, this this guy helped you get your half share, dog. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, you know? Yeah. So but the, the argument we made, if, if Kane wasn't on the team and didn't play lights out for the last two months, would they even be there? Right. Yeah. Right. So slippery slope. Koenig wasn't thrilled, but he accepted the decision in stride. I was disappointed, but the Cubs players were like that. Hey, they didn't vote Rogers Hornsby any money at all. He was the manager that got fired like two months out of the season. He didn't get zilch. Right. Okay. Because McCarthy was fired two years ago. Hornsby was fired that year in the middle of the thing. The Yankees didn't see it that way. Koenig was a former teammate. He had been part of the World Series winning teams in 1927 and 1928, and they knew that Koenig had helped the Cubs down the stretch. In their minds, the Cubs couldn't have come as far as they had without his contributions. So they started to howl about the injustice of Koenig not getting a full share. The biggest yeller was Babe Ruth. It wasn't like Ruth and Koenig were great friends, though. In fact, according to Lee Montville's biography, the, the pair engaged in a locker room fight in 1929 when Koenig made a disparaging remark about Ruth's wife, Claire. Oh, you don't talk about Babe Ruth's wife, dude. No, not when you're the pesky shortstop. <laughs> like, you don't talk about Babe Ruth's wife. Yeah. Don't, yeah, I mean, it's simple as that. Ruth had either forgotten or forgiven the incident by the time the 1932 World Series rolled around. He led the chorus blasting the Cubs for their unfair treatment of the former Yankee. Without Koenig's inspired play, I don't believe the Chicago club would have won, Ruth wrote in his autobiography, but the Cubs went mercenary and only gave Koenig a half share. Ruth called the Cubs a bunch of cheapskates, nickel nursers, and misers. When Koenig took the field for game one, Ruth shouted from the dugout, why do you associate with a bunch of bums like that? (laughs) According to Devins, Ruth called out to Koenig, so they're giving you a half share. Are they, Mark? Well, you better collect that five bucks right now. So just going in. And Koenig's like, this is awkward, man, because I like all those Yankees guys. Like, I'm a Cub now. Babe, shut up. Babe, you're embarrassing me. (laughs) The Cubs, meanwhile, fired back, telling Ruth and the Yankees to mind their own business. This had nothing to do with them. They rode Ruth about not being able to fulfill his dream of being able to manage. The Cubs jabbed him by saying he wasn't smart enough. Ruth wrote that the Cubs called him a grandpop, and he didn't descend into name-calling, which for him crossed the line, even though he also admitted to calling them (laughs) <laughs> calling them what was it nickel nursers cheapskates yeah. and misers but don't call me a grandpa don't call me names yeah hey i'll uh, <laughs> i'm babe ruth guys yeah so koenig said uh my heart 
still was with the Yankees. Those are my buddies over there. But I was a member of the Cubs and wanted to win. <laughs> Tough spot for <laughs> getting, little K, Nick. Getting pulled in a lot of different directions. Because at one side, he's like, yeah, I did deserve the money. But the other side, he's like, okay, but let's win. Let's win. <laughs> anyway, Koenig, who had been so strong down the stretch, injured his wrist and missed the rest of the series. As a result, the man who catalyzed the called shot watched the famous homer from the dugout. So basically, that started the shit talking in the series, right. and it just never ended. It was it. It was just like vicious. With the McCarthy aspect, with the Koenig aspect, there was just fireworks. Game one and two, the Yankees win easy at home. Game three, they go to Chicago. And in game one and two, I think Ruth and Ruth and Garrett both were like hitting homers like crazy, just like kind of blew them out. I, I forget the actual box score, but so they go to Chicago and uh Ruth knew he was going it was going to be a good day when he woke up. He loved nothing more than to come through when everyone was focused on him. Ever the showman, Ruth never wanted to disappoint. Even more, he wanted the opportunity to stick it to those Chicago fans. You see, there was no more on Ruth's plate on that October morning than just getting ready to play. Oh, you see, there was more on Ruth's plate on that October morning than just getting ready to play. The Cubs and their fans had committed a fatal mistake. They had made him mad. A day earlier, was that? Jim, just, just tying, tying some loose ends before you go on. Um Game one, yeah, Ruth and Gehrig both had big games. Yankees scored 12. They won 12-6. Also in game one that I think is important for this story is our boy Mark Koenig has a triple and a walk. Um, so he has a good game in the first game. And then, uh, I mean, kind of same same song and dance for game two. Yankees won 5-2. to two. And let me see if Ruthie got him. Gehrig and Ruth both had solid games again. So, yeah, the, the, yeah. the Yankees were rolling in. And Koenig was, was doing it, too. But then Kane got hurt in game yes. two, I believe. So they, they, when they showed up in Chicago, the, the Cubs fan had made Ruth mad. A day earlier, more than 5,000 fans had thronged the LaSalle Street station when the trains for both teams arrived. Imagine there was no other sports in 1930s. It was horse racing, boxing, and baseball. This was the only professional team sport. It was like, that's why it's America's pastime. 5,000 people showed up at the train station where the teams arrived. Yeah. That is nuts. The mob grew so thick and unruly that Ruth and his wife, Claire, had to be escorted to a freight elevator and then to a cab. To compound matters, a woman spat on them when they entered the hotel. Yeah. Ruth said, I've seen some nutty fans in my life, but never quite like those girls. When Claire and I reached the Edgewater Hotel, we were more, for we were more forced to run a gauntlet of two lines of hysterical, angry woman. Most of the wrath was directed at me. And during that rough trip, I had heard some words that I that even I had never heard before. But what annoyed me was their spitting and their bad aim. Poor Claire received most of it. <laughs> Sorry, Claire. <laughs> Maybe they were aiming at Claire, babe, knowing they would piss you off more. Yeah. Or they were trying to get Claire to break up with you and so they could marry you, babe. Yeah. Uh, he said, I'll belt one where it hurts the most. Also, Ruth did not head to Wrigley Field right away. He headed to the hospital to visit Leo Wilbur Copen, 16-year-old, who had been blinded during the gangland bombing of the home of a local judge. Learning of the incident, Ruth went to see the boy in the hospital. The slugger knew the impact that such hospital visits had on the children, and he rarely passed up an opportunity to help out. It's hard to imagine a current mega-athlete doing the same on the day of a World Series game, but it was a different time then. 
for all his flaws, Ruth had a huge heart, especially when it came to kids. I was just watching a documentary on Ruth, and that's true. Like, he was like a rambunctious, rowdy shit talker, but he was really, really had a big heart for like kids and people in need. Like, he did hospital visits all the time. Right. Well, was I mean, wasn't he like the full American story? I mean, wasn't was was he an orphan? Did I dream that? No, I don't think he was an orphan. But he grew up. I, I feel like I poor. did the Babe Ruth tour in Maryland one day, but I, I forget everything that happened. But, I mean, I I think it's pure rags to riches, biggest star in the world, and then, like, ev- everybody's all-American, kind yeah. of. Yeah. There was one story uh, in the documentary I was watching where a teammate said he was showering, and all of a sudden he was taking, like, a cool shower on a hot day. All of a sudden he felt one stream of, like, really warm water. He was like, what the fuck's this? And he turned around, and Babe was standing on a table peeing on his back. <laughs> stuff that's the same guy who would go to hospitals and talk to kids nicely and like dress up as santa for kids all the time he covered the spectrum yeah and i so yeah his parents were german immigrants one of eight children but six of his siblings died early yeah i but yeah i, I mean true true american dream shout shout out be more be more the jeering commenced as the Yankees and Ruth took the field for batting practice. The fans threw lemons at Ruth, who, a fun-loving soul, playfully tossed them back into the bleachers. <laughs> he said, You mugs are not going to see the Yankee Stadium anymore this year, Ruth called out for everyone to hear as he walked past the Cubs dugout. The World Series is going to be over Sunday afternoon, four straight. Imagine a player doing this now. It's awesome. Yeah, but they'd also get so much shit from everyone. Like, oh, he's a fucking, uh, like, try hard or, or he, like, just you're, shut up you're and You're right, but you're also, the, there's one key part about smack talk. It's your delivery and what happens afterwards. And, I mean, everything Babe Ruth did afterwards was covered it. Like, yeah. Michael, dude, some of the Michael Jordan stories, do you know the Michael Jordan Muggsy Bogue story? Yep, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean... Again, like I, I know it. Same thought process. Like if LeBron did that to someone nowadays, like he'd probably get torn up in the media for like a week. But I think when it's all said and done, it's like, yo, know how good they were, though. I get that. My, I totally agree with that. My thing is, what was going on in baseball fields in 1930 is more like what the youth is arguing to be allowed now, like bat flips and yelling and fun and expressing right. yourself. And I think this is somewhat in line with American history, because even if you look at the military in World War II, like they had mohawks, they had face paint, they had whatever hair they wanted. And in 1950s, America just got so like patriarchal and like uniform and be a man, stand in line, blah, 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 you know, and like dense down because this the rest of this game story, like it is it's what when you watch Dominican baseball and you're like, see, they're just like being passionate, having fun. It's not. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's what it feels like. But it got it got ruined at some point. Everyone said it was terrible. So anyway, he walks past the dugout and says, you're fucking going to get swept. We're going to win today and tomorrow. Four games. And during batting practice, Ruth hit nine balls into the stands and Gehrig seven. So they just put on a home run display. Sure. Uh, Gehrig turned around and said, the babe is on fire. He ought to hit one today. Maybe a couple. Gehrig and babe didn't like each other that much. Sure. Um, as he lofted yet another ball into the stands, he yelled, I'd play for half my salary if I get hit in this dump all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Just a good, great A shit talker. Yeah. 
time. It didn't take long. So Root was the pitcher for game three. Uh, I right. can't think of his last first name, but his last name was Root. Maybe you have it coming up. But Root's... Uh, yeah, I can I can get there one sec. So basically, Root watched the two starting pitchers before, who was Bush and someone else. And they tried to tiptoe around Babe and pitch around him and stuff like that, and they just destroyed him. So Root went into game saying, I'm going to attack him. I'm going to, you know, I'm the man. I'm going to attack him. Sneak In, up on him. Yeah. And it didn't take long for the Yankees to make Root eat his words. In the first, Earl Combs, the Yankees' leadoff man, reached first base on an error by shortstop Billy Jurgis, who had returned to the lineup after Mark Koenig hurt his wrist in game two. Root also appeared flustered, issuing a walk to the second hitter, Joe Sewell. With two on and nobody out and up to the plate, stepped Ruth. The Cubs didn't allow much leeway in the first two games, walking him three times. The big hitting star was Garrick, who homered in game one and had three hits in game two. Ruth knew, though, that Root couldn't pitch around him in this situation. As he walked from the on-deck circle to the batter's box, the boos rang through Wrigley. Wrigley. Again, a few lemons flew out from the stands. Ruth, dragging his bat, walked slowly, milking the moment for all the drama it was worth. How badass is that image? Yo, dragging the bat is surreal. I read that and I was like, holy shit. If we ever have a player on Talking Yanks, like I want to ask like, hey, do you know Babe Ruth in big moments would walk slowly dragging his bat in the sand behind him? Like, what are your thoughts? If a player did that now, like, I don't even know what it would look like. Like, dude, I'm trying to think of the the mean, I'm the only person that I can picture on a major league field doing that. And it's not a major league player. It's, it's someone from a movie. That's like the closest thing I can get to that is the bad, the like mean guy, um, What's what's the one rookie of the year? Yeah, yeah. Who's like he squeezes the bat and like sawdust drops. Yeah, like that's the only person that I could even put in whatever realm you would call that. That's that's it's, insane. It's phenomenal. Okay, so there's two on, and Ruth just got up to the plate, dragging his bat. The Cubs players were standing on the top steps of their dugout, led by pitcher Guy Bush. So he pitched in one of the first two games. I think he pitched in game one, and he was going to pitch game four. Fans within earshot heard Bush unleash a torrent of slurs at Ruth. Ruth absorbed them, electing not to take the bait this time. Instead, he focused squarely on Root. With the count at two and one, Root, not wanting to walk Ruth and leave the bases loaded for Garrick, delivered a fastball that caught too much of the plate. Ruth knew immediately when he made contact where the ball would land. He still was standing in the batter's box when the ball finally arched down in those bleachers in right center field. So he pimped it. He, he, watched, he watched it. He watched the whole thing. He pimped it. That's what I'm saying. This is what people like hate about baseball in the 90s but are trying to bring back now. Uh, so he pimped it. While a mad scramble for the ball ensued in the stands, the remainder of the crowd marveled at the force of the blow. Before they started booing again as Ruth... T- toward the bases Ruth could barely contain himself it was sweet revenge for the spitting to which the people of Chicago had subjected him and his wife the best though was yet to come so in the first inning single walk home run by Ruth to Charlie Root who said he was gonna you know be the man and win a game and attack 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 the fans breathed a sigh of relief when the Cubs got a run back in the first then after Garrett hit a long homer in the third to give the Yankees a 4-1 lead the Cubs found life with some help from Ruth Oh, what happened was, so the Cubs found 
life with some help from youth. After Chicago scored two runs in the third to trim the deficit to one, Jurgis opened the bottom of the fourth with a sinking line drive to left field. Ruth broke for the ball. Maybe in his younger days, he would have made the catch, but with his legs mostly gone, his gait looked almost like a waddle. <laughs> I can picture that in the old time videos. Oh yeah. I've, I've got a video I'm, I'm going to send you that I, I stumbled into before this. That is an old baseball player, Matt Williams doing a Babe Ruth like impression. And it's, it's pretty good. Yes. The run is spot on. The run is spot on. <laughs> that's, Ridiculous. that's Babe. That's Babe Ruth's run. All right. Yeah. So, um, uh, he awkwardly lunged, trying to make an ill-advised shoestring catch. The ball slid past him for a double, and Jurgis eventually scored the tying run. Now we're knotted up at four. The Wrigley crowd roared, taking enormous pleasure in watching the big oaf botch to play. The bleachers taunted Ruth once more, shouting at him to go eat some more hot dogs. Uh, they thought they were wearing him down, but really, they were only raising Ruth's drive higher. In the second inning, Ruth had barely missed his second homer, sending a root pitch to deep right field. Ruth didn't hammer quite all of it, though, and the ball was caught in front of the wall. Almost got him, though. Good signs. Now we lay our scene, Jake. Yes, we're here. Top of the fifth. You, everything that's come up to the scene, though, is awesome. Am I right? Oh, yeah. As I was reading this, I was just, this is such a fucking awesome story. Makes me want to read all old-time baseball stories. Yeah. Uh, top of the fifth during game three of the World Series at Wrigley Field, one out, the score tied four to four. Ruth already had done so much in his great career that it didn't seem likely that the slugger could eclipse his other achievements. Yet, his next at bat delivered the defining moment of Ruth's life in baseball. That one swing landed a legendary blow, dissected and debated quite literally for generations, a symbol in itself of the mythical powers that a man possessed. That should have been the intro. Whoa. The noise grew so loud that he almost didn't hear the slurs coming from the Cubs dugout. Almost. Almost. Again, the players stood on top of the steps led by Guy Bush and future Hall of Famer Burley Grimes. Burley Grimes. What a name. They called him a busher, a fat slob, and and other terms not suitable for some of the young kids sitting within earshot. A long-time Cubs public address announcer was sitting behind home plate. I heard things you can't print in a family newspaper. They sure were giving it to the babe. Edward Burns of the Chicago Tribune wrote that the, the abuse hurled at Ruth would probably go down as one of the classics of baseball razzing. Uh, Bob Corsetti said, in our dugout, we were really giving it back to the Cubs. So the Yankees dugout's not giving it back. So you have like the crowds into it. Tie game, Ruth up. The dugouts are just screaming at each other. That's some that's something else that's going through my mind cuz obviously like media and stuff and how how things get depicted but we also we're if we're going back here I mean how far away are we from in in the history timeline from like duels <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Well, 1932, so in like the late 1800s there might have been duels. There might some might have squeaked into the 19s, but we're like f- let's say 50 years to be safe, which would put us in like from today, 2019 to 1970. So I, I guess that's what I'm saying. In we're, memory we're span. T- where we got the fans are throwing fruit on the field. You, you've got these machissimo guys in like Babe Ruth, the star of stars. In this wild scene where guys are yelling at each other 
I feel like it was so intently that the fact that it was 50 years removed from people being able to kill each other in a duel, like, kind of crazy. Yeah, the last duel, noted duel in the U.S. was in 1859, so 1860, so this is 60 years past that. Okay. But still, so, like, Babe Ruth's dad, Babe Ruth's grandpa was telling him about duels. Duels. Ruth's animated reactions further spurred the Cubs in the crowd. Shut your traps, you bums. Ruth is quoted as firing back at Chicago dugout, although we can safely assume that he used more colorful language. Just think about if this happened today and the TV cameras like catching the dugouts just screaming at each other. It's insanity. It's insanity. Yeah. Yeah. Ruth took the first pitch for a strike, much to the fans' delight. Then Ruth threw two pitches for balls. With the pitch count at two and one, the razzing from the Cubs dugout now intensified. Bush and several teammates even went so far as to jump onto the field, badgering Ruth with increased vigor. Like this is like jungle type shit, like salivating on the field, screaming. Yeah. Then Ruth extended his arm and appeared to wave his hand. Was this when he mentioned, was this when he motioned to center field and called a shot? Or was he pointing at the Cubs players, directing them to get behind their dugouts? This much is certain. If you were at Wrigley Field that day, you saw Ruth make a grand gesture of some sort with the count two and one. Players on the field, fans in the stands, and writers in the press box all saw him do something unusual following that last pitch. Everyone leaned in to see how the drama would unfold. To clarify things, this gesture didn't occur on the pitch just prior to Ruth hitting the famous homer. It was after a root delivery that skittered away from the Cubs catcher, Gabby Hartnett. So after two and one, after one and two and one, the pitch is on the ground and he does this. So then the next pitch was a strike. Okay. So it's two and one. Ruth does some motion. Next pitch is a strike two. Wrigley Field erupted. Chicago was thrilled that Root was, wasn't going to back down from facing Yankee Slugger. No old Charlie was going to fight back with his best stuff. He was only one good pitch away from striking out the bum, and an unexpected crowd thought. The unexpected crowd thought. As Hartnett returned the ball to Root again, Ruth cocked his arm again, cocked his arm, and his hand at chin level extended one finger of his right hand. Again, what was he doing? What was the meaning of that gesture, which was subtler than the first one? According to Hartnett, Ruth said, it only takes one to hit it. Garrick is quoted as saying that the Ruth called out Root. I'm going to knock the next one down your goddamn throat. Umpire Van Graflin said that he heard Ruth announce rather primly, let him put this one over and I'll knock it over the wall out of there. So all there's video evidence of the first thing after the two and one pitch. There's video evidence of Ruth. You can see it. And it does look like he's yelling at them, like, get off the field. Shut up. Right. But then after that, there's a more subtler where he throws up one finger. Okay. Um, and I go, but what exactly did those hand gestures mean? Was Ruth spotlighting Bush, telling him to get back into the dugout? Was he emphasizing his message to Root? Was he announcing that he only had two strikes on him? Or was there more? Was he really pointing to center field, calling his shot like a pool hustler? The next pitch was a changeup curve low and away only a foot off the ground root later said that no other player in the game would have been able to do anything with what should have been ball three when the ball first reversed against the bat 
Cubs second baseman Billy Herman had a chance to catch the line drive, is what people thought. The ball kept rising, though, as if launched from a cannon. Cubs center fielder Johnny Moore took a few steps back and then stopped giving up the futile chase. Improbably, the ball still appeared to be ascending as it passed over his head. This wasn't going to be some windblown chip shot that barely made the seats. No, this homer was about to demonstrate the essence of what sports writers like Rice had defined as a Ruthian blast. The ball whizzed past the right side of the center field fence and kept flying. Nobody had ever reached that neighborhood at Wrigley Field, not even Cubs slugger Hack Wilson, who pounded out 56 homers in 1930. Estimates placed the homer's distance at nearly 500 feet. According to reports, seven different fans outside the stadium all said they caught the ball. Elation surged through Ruth in the instant he made contact with the ball. He knew he had airmailed a souvenir to the bleachers. You lucky bum, Ruth said to himself as he headed to the first base. You lucky bum. He could have cut a meat grounder, a soft pop-up, or the air-piercing strikeout that the stadium wanted. Instead, he stunned the crowd and even himself with one of the longest home runs of his career. By the time Ruth reached first base, he literally had become giddy over his accomplishment. Typically, Ruth's homers preceded a long, languid trot around the bases, extending his version of an encore, but not for this homer. Ruth was so excited that he practically sprinted around the bases. Even his own teammates cracked that they hadn't seen him run that fast in quite some time. Picking up speed, he gestured wildly, flashing four fingers at the Cubs infielders in their dugout. He was letting, letting them know, in no uncertain terms at this time, that this series was going to be over in four games. Squeeze the Eagle Club, he shouted at the Chicago dugout, referring to their tight-fistedness. Squeeze the Eagle, which is the Eagle was on the quarter until it screams, was a saying at that time about cheap people. They would hold on to their money until the eagle, so tight the eagle would scream. So he called them the Squeeze the Eagle Club. That is awesome. Wow. Speechless? It's a, it's a lot of moving parts. It's, you, do, you do wonder where some of history in 1930s comes into play. Like when you said the one line like, oh, people thought the second baseman had a chance on it. Like, no, that was like the bad sports reporter at the time <laughs> who was like, oh, not yeah, I was uh, the, the ball, he hit it so hard, I thought the second baseman had a chance on it, it just kept going. Like, no, I think Ruth caught one and it was gone. Well, it might it might have been a low line drive that kept going. And that was like his hyperbolic way of saying that. But Right. But uh I mean the paint's a beautiful image. Yeah. Ruth couldn't recall ever feeling this good after Homer. As he was greeted by teammates, he let out a triumphant chant. Did Mr. Ruth chase those guys back into the dugout? Mr. Ruth sure did. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. Garrett came up next and hit Ruth's next pitch into the right field bleachers for his second Homer of the day, and Ruth was done. Crazy, huh? Yeah. It's it's everything. It's all-encompassing. Next time Ruth walked onto the field... To right field, they were just mocking him and calling him, throwing lemmings at him for his his misplay. He got a standing, sure. he got a standing ovation. Baseball people, people were just in awe, like, "What the fuck did I just watch that guy do?" Yeah, it was perfection from a large man swinging a piece of wood. Ruth tipped his cap to them. Later on in the game, in game four, they hit they hit guy guy Bush, beamed Ruth. He wound up and fired a fastball directly at Ruth. This wasn't a pitch that got away. This was Bush's own version of a called shot. The ball struck Ruth on his right wrist. He tried to brush it off as he trotted down the first. Hey, Lop Ears, was that your fastball? Ruth called out. I thought it was a gnat. 
Lop ears? Yeah. Ooh. I thought it was a gnat. It's good. <laughs> Stings. Yeah. All right. So there we go. That's what happened, okay? Okay. It was turned out to be his his it turned out to be his final World Series. He hit 333 with two homers and six RBIs, but Gehrig had hit 529 with three homers and eight RBIs in four games. So a lot of people say he didn't call a shot. They say he was just like, you know, yelling back. Right. Saying the catcher says he didn't call a shot. A lot of fans say he did. Like, of course he called his shot. But a lot of a lot of the players, the catcher says, no, he was saying it only takes one. He was saying, get back in the dugout. Throw one where I can hit it. So... What you said at the beginning of the show is exactly, I think, what happened. He didn't say, I'm going to hit a home run right now. But he was like, the crowd was two strikes. They all thought they got him. And he he was making a point like, still got one strike left. Yeah. Or throw another one. So, but even then, Jake, so if you're, if you're in the crowd and, and you don't know what's happening, you just see his hand go up. You may think he called it. So in those people's brains, he called it because that's what they right. thought at the moment. Like if you're in the grandstand and you see him do that, you turn to your buddy like, I think he just called it. And then he hits a home run and he says, he did fucking just call it. So he might not have called it, but like in their heads he did. So that's that moment for them. He called it. Right. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like all the people in the crowds are like, you can tell me he didn't call it, but I was there and that's what happened in my brain and what I felt. And they're right. And it's hitting a home run, one of the hardest things to do in sports. And even like, even if the story was just he's saying, hey, I get one more pitch and he's telling he's telling the Cubs and the fans to shut the hell up for one more pitch. Even that's insane. That's just as nutty because he called something. Yeah. Like he is. Even if he didn't say what he called was, if you give me one more pitch. I'm going to hit it. Yeah. So he did that. He, he, he said, I'm not out yet. Watch this. Yeah. He basically said, watch this to the everyone. Yeah. So the at-bat was this big, huge moment. So maybe like if people want to naysay and say, he didn't call that he was going to hit a home run. Sure, I agree with you. But he, call, he made a spectacle of the moment and then came through and delivered on that spectacle the best you could i didn't realize it was a 500 foot homer to go with to give the team the lead like i didn't know any of those details yeah i mean to to give the team the lead to like basically ensure the sweep in the world series um again like i this is just me being jakey skeptics a little bit like 500 feet i don't know like did babe did babe ruth hit 500 foot home runs I don't know what we were measuring with back then, you know. Well, yeah, but I'm sure they had the inches was an inch was an inch and a foot was a foot, and I'm sure they did a lot of studies to see where they think it landed. They might not know, but they know like the general area. I don't think you can you can murk up that. You can say four fifty plus is still impressive, and I can't. I don't think it's going to be scaled from four hundred to five hundred. Yeah, I I think I I think he he hit a bomb. I mean, I yeah, I I I don't know. I it's it's all super impressive. I'm not going to take away from it from that, but um, that's why he's the babe, man. Wrigley still exists. I wonder if like 
you can Google where did Babe's called shot land and it comes up. I'm trying to find it, but uh, it doesn't show up. But there is video of it. But there's video of when he tells the dugout, like, hey, get out of here. But right. so anyway, everyone says when he came to the dugout, he had he didn't act like he called a shot, you know? Right. Um, he, he might not have got if he called a home run, he might not have gotten off the bases. Babe Ruth would just be buried on the Wrigley base path. Uh, there's a lot of good quotes from afterwards that I, that I wrote down because let me see, let me see, let me see. Where are they? Guy Bush, who was the main instigator yelling, he was yelling to, to at Babe Ruth. He said afterwards, I got to be honest. I got to be honest with you. I thought he pointed to right center or center field bleachers. So in his brain, he felt like it, what happened in his brain live was he called a shot. Even Guy Bush, right. he had to get shut up real bad. The Lou Gehrig, every Yankee said he did it. Right. Charlie Devins was a pitcher on the Yankees, and he sums it up the best way I think we do. Devins did believe Ruth made some sort of gesture. And then he, he said, Devins said, it was quite extraordinary to see him point, then hit the very next pitch out of the ballpark. Like what the point meant. Did it mean I have one strike left? Did it mean I'm going to hit a home run? It, either way, he made a gesture, then hit a home run. That's right. That's that's something. Uh, the so the the uh, so a lot of the Koenig says no, he didn't call a shot. And then uh, Dickey, Dickey from the Yankees said all of us players could see it was a hell of a good story. So we just made an agreement not to bother straightening out the facts. It's like right away. There's other quote from Ruth that I can't find right now. They were like. Yeah, let's just let him run with that because that's an awesome story. Yeah. Yeah. Then Ruth, at times, he bought into the story and he would completely agree with it because he got like movie deals out of it. He was like, yeah, of course I did that. Other times, uh, other times he said like on a radio show later on, someone said, babe, a lot of people in Chicago still say that you pointed towards center field bleachers before you hit that home run. And babe said, doc, can you hear me? Yeah. A little louder. Can you hear me? Yeah. You tell those people, baby, you tell those people for baby. That's what he referred to himself as baby. Mm. You tell those people for baby that baby says they're full of crap right up their eyeballs. I may be dumb, but with root out there, the next pitch, they'd be picking out of my ear with a pair of tweezers. No way I did. So sometimes Ruth said no way. Mm. And root said, if I thought he was calling a shot, I would have beamed him right away. Yeah, exactly. Like that's, that would happen nowadays, especially back then. Mm-hmm. If you looked at the pitcher and said, "I'm going to hit a home run," no, you're not. Oh my god, you're getting you're getting a ball. Yeah, you're getting a gnat in your ear. Yeah. Then there is another quote from Ruth, though, where he says it's true, and I I copy and pasted this quote and sent it to Jake and see if he could do his best old Babe Ruth voice impression because it's a marvelous. This was Babe Ruth at a cocktail party, talking to a writer, and he and the writer asked him at a cocktail party. What happened? And this was his response. I tried finding Babe Ruth's voice, so it's going to be a little old-timey, but a little tough guy. That's how I was telling Jim, because he was literally the king of the world. The babe said this. It's like this. The Cubs had fucked my old teammate, Mark Koenig, by cutting him for only a measly fucking half share of the World Series money. Well, I'm riding the fuck out of the Cubs, telling them they're the cheapest pack of fucking crumb bums in the world. We've won the first two, and we're in Chicago for the third game. 
Roots to Cubs pitchers. I I park one in the stands in the first inning, but in the fifth, it's tied 4-4 when I'm up with nobody on. The Chicago fans are giving me hell. Root's still in there. He breezes the first two pitches by me. Both strikes. The mob's tearing down Wrigley Field. I shake my fist after the first strike. After the second strike, I point my bat at these Belerian bleachers right where I aim to park the ball. Root throws it, and I hit that fucking ball on the nose right over the fence for another fucking run. <laughs> the babe cursed like a sailor. How you like those apples, you fucking bastard? I yell at Root as I run towards first. By the time I reach home, I'm almost falling down. I'm laughing so fucking hard. That's how it happened. That was Babe Ruth telling the story at a cocktail party after the fact. So he loved the drama of it all. Dude, Babe Ruth did movies. Like, you know how Elvis did movies? Babe Ruth, like, acted in movies when he was young. Yeah. He was top of the world. So the mystery has kind of been solved, I think. But where it's troubling, like I said earlier, is some people that were there that witnessed it said no. He pointed... I believed he was pointing to hit a home run, and then he hit a home run. So you can't change my brain. And I, I understand that. That's fantastic for them. Either way, it's the, one of the, the cooler, most impressive sports stories out there. Oh, yeah. Easily. Easily. So solved it. He didn't call a home run, but he basically said, watch this. You could say he called it. Yeah. He said something he, was going to happen. He called it. Good story, huh? Depends what it is for you, but he called it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm riding the fuck out of the Cubs, telling them they're the cheap pack of fucking crumb bums in the world. <laughs> it's aggressive. Uh, so it started with a groupie shooting a shortstop, ended with the greatest baseball player ever. There it is. Doing his greatest feat ever. And that was uh, the tale of Babe Ruth. This was Laughs from the Past. This was season three, episode three. We will be back next week with another one. I'm not sure which one it's yet. Won't be sports related. It'll be more of uh, another mystery. But this was a fun tale that I think, I think if you don't like baseball, you just like the spectacle of it all. If you like baseball, you love, you gotta love this story. Yeah. I mean, if you like baseball, if you like sports, you can appreciate it. And I think even outside of sports, you, you, you can't appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Tuesday with another laughs from the past.